Well, when we hear words like glory, glow, radiate, illuminate, shine, beam, sparkle, (laughs) gleam, and twinkle, when we hear those words, they evoke positive emotions in our minds and in our hearts, even noticed there by some of your giggles or laughs. As you know, these words are adjectives or words that describe a person, a a place or a thing. They are not the thing. They describe the nature of the thing, right? Uh, So we might say something like this, that firecracker sparkled in the night, or that young lady is glowing. You see, dear friends, when we look up into the dark of night, we say something like this, look at how beautiful the stars are tonight. But in fact, that which we are seeing is not the star, but that which the star produces its light. The star is not the light. The light is emitted from the very nature of the star. We know the star exists because the light that shines forth from it. Pause momentarily and ask yourself, what words an unbiased person would use to describe you? Would they say you are radiating, shining, or beaming forth light? And if so, would they say that that light that you are shining is due to the nature of God's creative work inside your life or that you're just relatively a nice person? We could ask a star why it is that it sparkles so brightly or a bird why it is that they sing so beautifully. They would unequivocally say that God created them that way. Likewise, Jesus, speaking to his disciples, says, Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. In other words, true disciples are commanded to shine, to beam, to sparkle in such a way that unbelievers would unequivocally say that God has made them that way. We're visiting Capital City Church this morning. We are studying our way through the life of Christ and have arrived at the Sermon on the Mount. The sermon is taking place in the context of Jesus having just chosen 12 apostles who were now going to be with him full time. Uh, He was going to send them out to preach and cast out demons. Based upon Luke and Matthew's account of this sermon, it is focused on those who were following Christ, that is, his disciples. However, we know that the crowds, as the text says, were very large, and the sermon uh, 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 certainly affected beyond just those disciples as it does today. Matthew notes that Jesus sat down to teach, and his disciples came to him. And likewise, Luke says in chapter 6 that Jesus fixed his gaze on the disciples, and he began to speak. Let's remember, though, that not all the disciples were authentic believers bound for heaven. Judas Iscariot was among the twelve of the closest of Jesus' disciples, and he was Jesus' betrayer. And many of Jesus' disciples, just like folks today, claimed to be followers of Christ, 
But in the judgment, as this sermon will go on to say later in chapter 7, we will find that Jesus will say, go away from me, I never knew you. So it is, dear friends, that Jesus preaches this sermon to many, but specifically to those who say they are following him. And this sermon forces them and us, by the way, to ask the question, am I an authentic believer or not? It functions somewhat like a mirror to look in. Does my life look the way Jesus is describing the life of a believer here? And if not... What problems are there? What needs to be fixed? How might we go back to the psalm that we opened up with today and ask the question, does it apply to me? Is is the Word of God truly a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path that directs everything that I do? Or am I Christian by title or name or association or because I grew up in the church or whatever that might be? I believe Jesus' love for humanity is so much so that, there, the, the, that he, in his desire to not see a single soul in hell, is, is saying, please don't deceive yourself. Look into the mirror of this sermon and ask yourself, are you authentic or not? Today we're going to see that the sermon teaches true believers shine for God's glory. They shine for God's glory. And how do they do that? By being salt and light. Every sermon has a structure, and if I could have fit uh, these verses into last week's sermon, we would have gone over them as the conclusion to Jesus' introduction that we are very familiar with that is called the Beatitudes. In effect, to be salt and light for the glory of God is the natural or rational result of a person who lives out the Beatitudes that we studied last week in verses 3 through 12. And very important to today's sermon, uh, Jesus said in Matthew 5 verses 11 through 12, those verses just prior to the ones we're in today, blessed are you when people insult you. Remember, he's speaking to the disciples. And persecute you those disciples, and falsely say all kinds of things and, of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. I don't have a lot of time to go into it, but it's important to remember that, that Jesus is choosing these 12 men, and these men will, will as we have seen right here, are going to, to uh, be those who get put out into the world or sent out into the world, and they will be salt and they will be light in the world, much like the prophets were salt and light to Israel. How did those prophets function for Israel? Like salt, they were sent to preserve, and like light, they were sent to preach repentance to Israel to keep them from further corruption. In effect, the prophets of the Old Testament were preserving and shining God's glory to a nation. And now these 12 at at an 
indistinguishable amount of time from, from this, to, at least to them, are going to be sent into the world, and they will be salt, and they will be light, and they will be hated. And when we went over a few weeks ago, the choosing of the 12, we, we talked about each one of them and the persecution that they received. So, beloved, as we look at Matthew 5, 13 through 16, we can understand that it is the conclusion to the introduction. As Jesus has set his gaze upon his disciples, he looks at them and says in verse 13, you are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. I don't think many of us need to be reminded of the condition of this earth and its inhabitants. However, the presupposition to the statement that you are the salt of the earth supposes that uh, we know the earth is corrupt and that the earth is fallen. We remember that when Adam sinned in the third chapter of Genesis, uh, God cursed the whole earth, right? Everything gets cursed. Death comes upon, upon everything in the earth. And certainly corrupted all of mankind. We turn on the nightly news, it is full of wars, rumors of wars, national tragedies, and political conspiracies where the fallen nature of humanity is on full display. And we might be encouraged by being reminded that when Jesus was resurrected and when he commanded his 11 remaining apostles to go into all the world, he did not command them to go and create democracies. No, he commanded them to go and make disciples who would one day rule in a kingdom with him. You see, beloved, God's plan for the world was disciples making disciples who would be salt in the earth. And salt is so valuable in biblical times that God made a covenant of salt with David and his sons in 2 Chronicles 13.5. In Leviticus 2, verse 13, the Lord says this, Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt, so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. Now, there's a plethora of opinions about what Jesus was implying by calling authentic believers salt. But the two primary ones are that salt tasted good as a spice, and secondly, that salt was a good preservative. If Jesus meant his disciples to understand that they would make the earth taste better, the question would have to be to whom? If he meant that the world would love and taste of genuine, uh, love the taste of genuine believers, that seems far from his own teaching uh, that since the world hated them or him, that they would hate him and them also, his disciples. And we do not have to dig too deep into history to know that Christians have never been thought well of by the world. By and large, as one preacher said, Christians are the rain on the world's parade. I had a friend years ago after I got saved who is not as close of a friend anymore. He would refer to Christians as those who belong to the NFL, the No Fun League. 
I can't talk the way I want. I can't do what I want. I have to buffer all of the fun that my flesh wants to have. You're just a bunch of people that belong to the NFL. <laughs> that's the world, and that's how they see Christianity. In fact, if you are a first-generation Christian, you likely uh, have lost friends. You have likely, uh, it is likely that you do not get invited to family functions, and it is quite likely and possible uh, you have even lost a spouse or had a spouse leave you or have had family members despise you because of your faith in Christ. And in some countries, you would for sure lose everything that I just mentioned, and it would be highly likely that along with losing all that, you would lose your life too. Just put that up on the altar. And it's not to say that authentic disciples of Christ should be Debbie Downers. (laughs) We should be a people who, because of the Spirit of God in our lives, emit love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and long-suffering and self-control. We should have a permanent smile on our face thinking uh, with a joy of the Lord that overcomes the idea that regardless of all that goes around me and all the persecution and and all the losses that I might experience as 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 a person following after Christ, I know that in the end, that if I have been counted to be persecuted the way Christ was persecuted, that like those apostles after Jesus' resurrection who went up onto the Temple Mount and were were ultimately persecuted and beat, they they went away bouncing, right, (laughs) for joy because they had been counted uh, worthy of receiving the punishment that Jesus said they would receive for following him. It should be joy, right? (laughs) It should be a joy. That underlies some of the hurt that Christians experience. So it is, it could be that Jesus uses the description of the salt of the earth towards his disciples because those in the world will enjoy their taste. However, it may be more likely that genuine believers are those who preserve God's truth in the world. By and large, salt was used as a preservative in a world that had no refrigeration. Can you imagine? No refrigerator. Just pause for a second. Put yourself there. How are you going to eat this afternoon? <laughs> what would you eat? How long has that lunch meat been in the, in, in the box? Right? Salt was used as a preservative in a world that had no refrigeration. One could pack their slaughtered meat in it, and the meat would cure giving a person more time to consume it, right, without going completely bad. And we remember that Jesus had just mentioned the prophets who were persecuted for preserving the truth of God's promise to Israel. It goes to say that authentic disciples of Jesus will be persecuted for the same reasons the prophets were, for preserving truth in the world. In this view, salt is preserving the earth from certain deterioration and destruction. In other words, it is holding back the world's certainly uh, the, the world's certainty of going completely bad like that lunch meat. With the current situation in the Middle East, there is much talk about biblical end times, 
And there are several key verses that help us today to understand how these end times events play out. One important chapter is 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And when we begin reading that, uh, and in the first five verses of that chapter, the Thessalonian church has been upset because of some false teachers who were teaching that the day of the Lord had already come, meaning that Jesus had already come back. So in uh, verses 1 through 5, Paul tells them not to be deceived or quickly shaken and to remember that uh, a great apostasy must happen first and that the Antichrist must be revealed first. 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 6 says this, And you know what restrains him, that's the Antichrist, now. And we might pause for a second, and there's a lot of debate about this, but uh, I believe strongly that that is the church. What do we know? What, what restrains the Antichrist and, and the spirit of Antichrist, the church, the salt of the earth, so that in his, that's the Antichrist time, he will be revealed. For the mystery of lawlessness, we would consider that to be the sinful condition, the, the decaying world. The prince of the power of the air that Paul would talk about in Ephesians chapter 2 is ruling the sons of disobedience, right? That mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he, a reference again, I'm going to say to the church, who now restrains, that is, the mystery of lawlessness, will do so until he is taken out of the way. A reference to the rapture of the church in 1 Thessalonians 4. Then, that is after the restrainer is taken away, that lawless one will be revealed. So it is, beloved, that at least in my view, that being the salt of the earth is a reference to preserving or restraining evil in the earth. And the primary way that Jesus' disciples were going to accomplish that was by preaching the gospel and making other disciples more salt, more salt. More salt. <laughs> Push back. Vote for people who don't hate life. More salt. Preserve the earth. And what will happen when that preservation gets pulled out? No salt. No preservation. No pushing back. And the evil one will rule the earth and cause destruction. And millions will die. The Apostle Paul says, stand firm, preserve the truth, make disciples, be the salt or the preservers of the earth until the rapture. Though it is, beloved, no matter where you might land on the exact meaning of being salt in the earth, the salt Jesus speaks of refers to an authentic believer's influence while on this earth. Whether it is that they make the earth taste better or that they are preserving it, or any other thing that you might come up with, the idea is not hard to understand. Being a genuine believer in Christ is good for the earth. It's good for the earth. And the warning in contrast to the good salt is clearly seen in the remainder of verse 13. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Dear friends, Jesus means to challenge the genuineness 
of our faith in him. He's effectively forcing us to ask the question, are we good salt or are we bad salt? Are we authentic believers or are we counterfeit believers? Both were sitting in the crowd in front of him. Both would say that they were following Christ. One would be a preserver of the things of God and an assaulter of the world, and the other would just say, well, I'm a Christian, but I live a completely different kind of life. The language to be thrown out and trampled is similar to other New Testament language describing the eternal judgment to come upon those who are not believers. They will be thrown out into complete or utter darkness where the fire is not quenched and the worm does not die. Can we catch the heart of Christ? Is he speaking to disciples who believe they're all going to heaven and he is knowing that they are not all going to heaven? And he is saying, look into the mirror, look into the mirror, look into the mirror. Are you a preserver of the things of God in this life or are you not? You may even take the liberty with me or not, but I believe that in the midst of these beatitudes, we might say, blessed are those who are salt of the earth, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Time escapes us, but it is not difficult for us to understand that Jesus tells this parallel story of salt and, uh, with the story of light, and it has the same exact implications as these in verses 14 and 15. He says this, You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all, listen to where they are, <coughs> who are in the house, all who are in the house. See, beloved, in, in those days, uh, 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 um, one who was taking care of their home and cities were, were often put up on these hills for a number of different reasons. It was so that sojourners and people could see where they're at. Certainly, there was a military advantage to being put up on a hill but they would set these lights oftentimes in their, in their windows so that people could see or find their way to this, this city on a hill, this light that was being put out. And the idea here in the text is that all could see it, right? All could find it. It, it was a, a good thing to be, uh, to, it was not a great thing to be caught in the darkness of night and not know where you're going. I don't know if you've ever been there. But the fact is, is when that little light comes on, right, there's just a little rest that happens in our souls, and, and it says, that's the direction to go. Safety there. And this is the idea in the text, that there should be light in the believer's life that shines forth in such a way that those who are lost, those who are in darkness, they can see that light, they would be attracted to that light, they would come to that light, And everyone who gets in that house, the light affects. Where the salt preserves the earth, a true and authentic Christian cannot be hidden amidst a dark world. The born-again, life-giving nature of God, the Holy Spirit living uh, inside a person, will be a light many will hate, but no one can deny. And of course, the question is, as we study our way through this dense and challenging sermon, do we actually have the light and eternal life of the Holy Spirit living on the inside of us? 
Maybe you are in here this morning and uh, you are similar to a man that Jesus interacted with. His name was Nicodemus and he deeply believed that if he did more good things than bad things that he would enter into the kingdom of heaven. Jesus loved him enough to tell him that that was not true and that no amount of good things done would ever get him into heaven. No amount. Jesus told Nicodemus that if he would look to Jesus, who would be punished and raised up on the cross, God would give Nicodemus new and eternal born-again life. You will be something completely new, Nicodemus. If you look to me like like the Israelites who looked to that bronze uh, serpent for salvation, if you'll look to me like that, you will find healing and life just like they did. And he went into this discourse. We're so familiar with it, but it's so, so powerful. If you do that, Nicodemus, you will have new life. You will be like you are born again. And there will be a light inside of you that begins to shine that does not come from you. And that light is, is, is not going to get you into heaven. It is there because you're already going. It's a life that is inside that the Spirit of God has, has planted, put in. It emits from them like that star that emits the light. The very being of its gases on fire emit that light. You can't work your way. You can't get there by yourself. It won't happen. You must look to Christ, Jesus told Nicodemus. Effectively, if Nicodemus believed, he would become a light, a city on a hill that, would, uh, that many would hate, of course, but no one could deny Like those stars that glimmer, beam, twinkle, and shine at night, Nicodemus would, on his own, not be the light, but the nature of God himself living on the inside would be. Dear friends, have you been born again? You have a real light shining from the inside of you. You haven't. Or have you been playing Christianity? Have you been showing up because that's the right thing to do? Would those around you look at your life and see light and joy coming from it? And it's not forced. It's just who you have become. With the life and the light of God living inside of you. If that is you, notice the instructions that Jesus gave in verse 16. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. You see, friends, good works will not get you into heaven, but there will not be a single person in heaven who does not do good works. (laughs) Are you tracking with me? They won't get you there, but there won't be a person there who doesn't have them who doesn't have them. What will some of these light-shining good works be? Well, beloved, in context, as I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon, that, that this is kind of the conclusion of the introduction, we can look back up to the Beatitudes and see that the good works of those who will inherit the kingdom of heaven and what they look like. They will be those who will mourn over their sin. They will be those who are gentle 
They will be those who hunger and thirst for God's kind of living on this earth, and they will be merciful to others, pure in heart, and they will be those who make peace, not just keep it. And finally, as we've seen today, they will be salt preserving the earth by living out the written truth of the Scriptures. And they will let their light shine for all the world to see. And notice, they will do so in such a way that they do not get the glory, but their Father who is in heaven will. Isn't that interesting? When we're doing good works for everyone else to see, it is all about our glory. But when the Spirit of God has taken up residence in your life and it, and it produces life and light in your life and you're just doing good things because that's what you do, because the Spirit of God has led you to do those good things, then, then the glory doesn't go to you. It doesn't go to the individual. It goes to the one who brought about the light, who created it that way. Pastor MacArthur, in his commentary on Matthew, had many wonderful and historic examples of people who have been salt and light to this decaying world. And one of those examples was a story about our 23rd president of the United States, Democratic President Woodrow Wilson. Wilson did not exhibit a biblical worldview at all in his governing of humanity uh, during his tenure and he is best known for opposing women's suffrage movement and the widespread firing of African Americans who were working for the federal government because of his views on segregation. According to the commentary, Wilson's written testimony of interacting with salt and light goes like this. Quote, I was sitting in a barber chair when... I became aware that a powerful personality had entered the room. might just pause for a second. Now, this is the President of the United States. And he's sitting in a chair and notices the presence of another human being walking into the door. Try and set yourself there. I was sitting in a barber chair when I became aware that a powerful personality had entered the room. A man had come quietly in. And uh, upon the same errand as myself to have his hair cut and sat in the chair next to me. Every word the man uttered, though it was not in the least educational, showed a personal interest in the man who was serving him, his barber. And before I got through with what was being done to me, I was aware I had attended an evangelistic service because Mr. D.L. Moody was in that chair next to me. I purposely lingered in the room after he had left and noted the singular effect that his visit had brought upon the barber shop. Those barbers did not know his name, but they knew something had elevated their thoughts, and I felt that I left that place as I should have left a place of worship. You see, beloved, an authentic believer's life will shine, it will glimmer, it will glow, it will twinkle, it will salt the earth and shine for God's glory. We can only hope that President 
Wilson's interaction with authentic salt and light drew him to repentance. Amen. Let's pray.